Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. As the Northern Hemisphere heads towards its second winter battling COVID-19, could a surge in flu cases cause a catastrophic twindemic? I'm Kenneth Kukier, and this is Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. Also coming up on today's show, people are more anxious than ever, but an increase in anxiety may not be such a bad thing. Even a simple weather report can start to stimulate anxiety. The first kind of mindset shift is understand that at its core, anxiety is helpful. It is good. And can part artificial coral reefs serve as effective sea defenses? A company called Sea Cell are just setting up their first hybrid coral reef. And while the neighbouring resorts are all putting up breakwaters using sandbags or rocks, theirs is going to be all natural and theirs is going to be more of an attraction than an eyesore. But first... In many countries, experts are warning of what may be a tough winter. It's dubbed the twindemic, and there's concern about it. We're talking about a more... Are you worried about a twindemic threat as COVID-19 cases are filling hospitals? The concerns about a twindemic are once again growing with flu season just around the corner. The seasonal flu is an illness caused by a group of influenza viruses that circulate among birds, humans, and other mammals. Despite the availability of flu vaccines, the World Health Organization estimates that each year the flu kills between 300,000 and 650,000 people. But last year, restrictions to curb the spread of COVID-19 meant that the influenza virus did not circulate so much, so that there were significantly less flu cases worldwide. In all specimens that the World Health Organization tested last winter, the amount of influenza was less than 0.2%. The average positivity of the three previous flu seasons was 17%. This autumn, places with high COVID-19 vaccination rates are opening up to a much greater extent than last year. The Economist Normalcy Index shows that on average, the world is back to two-thirds of its pre-pandemic activity. With this uptick in mobility, might there be a resurgence of the seasonal flu alongside the COVID-19 pandemic? Influenza virus tends to change its strain quite often, rather more, for example, than coronavirus. Dayman Johnson is a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at University College London. She's also the president of the UK's Academy of Medical Sciences, which released a report looking at respiratory infections in the winter and beyond. So we have to be looking at what are the strains that are circulating around the world. And each year, the vaccine manufacturers try to make a vaccine which is matching 
the circulating strains to try and give uh, good protection. What happens is that the strains tend to change a little bit as time goes on, but every now and again you get a big shift, a big change. And when you get a big change, that means that you can then get a pandemic, that is an infection that affects people more because they have less immunity to it. And when you get a big shift in the strain that's circulating, that's when you tend to be in bigger trouble. How effective are the flu vaccines? Well, the effectiveness of the flu vaccines is not as great as the COVID vaccines, and it depends very much on which strain of the virus is being transmitted. If you get a mismatch between the, the strains that you think you're going to get that winter and then a new virus arises and you've got less immunity in the population, the vaccines aren't so effective, then you'll see more severe disease. So the effectiveness of vaccines does depend both on the vaccine itself and on the strains that are, are circulating and how good the match is. Now, you mentioned that scientists manufacture the vaccines based on the previous year's flu virus. But if last year had such an abnormally low level of cases, will this year's vaccine target the right strain? In the northern hemisphere, we're also looking to the southern hemisphere to think what to put in the vaccine. There is a, an international group of scientists who meet together and they use all the surveillance data around the world to try and understand which viruses are circulating. So even if you've got quite low levels of virus activity, there should be enough indications from what you have got to do reasonable matching of the strains. But that is the bigger challenge this year because of the, the uncertainty. The other thing I should say is that flu is very unpredictable. To give you one example, you might remember in 2009, which was the last pandemic where we got a new strain which had quite a big change in it. And there was great anxiety. Remember, it was first signaled in Mexico with a number of um, deaths occurring in young people. There was great fear that we would have a major pandemic with a very high mortality rate. As it turned out, whereas that virus did spread, quite a lot. It, it was a virus that didn't cause a lot of disease. So in addition to the strain that you put in the vaccine, you also have to look at the circulating strain and that will spread at different rates according to how much immunity there is in the population. But the damage it causes will also depend on how much disease it causes. And that varies quite a lot. Is it possible that because there was a lack of a flu season last year, that this year's outbreak could be worse? Well, that is a concern. And one of the concerns is that because we have seen very little flu transmission, and that's because we've been doing social distancing, wearing masks, all this respiratory hygiene has prevented the transmission of other respiratory infections. So one concern might be that we reduce the level of immunity in the population so that when these start circulating again, they are transmitted more. Now, that depends both on the antibodies to the particular strain of the flu that's circulating in the population, as well as their sort of memory T-cell immunity, which is a sort of longer-lasting memory cells, which we know from our studies can be useful in reducing the impact of the virus. So if we get some waning immunity, you can see that that might cause increased transmission. And then you've also, of course, got in the last couple of years, more children born into the population and so on. And so there'll be some who are sort of newly susceptible. So it's a very complicated equation and notoriously unpredictable how much transmission we'll get and how much disease it causes. But every year, of course, flu does cause thousands of deaths in the population in the UK and many more around the world. And we know that vaccines can protect against severe disease. 
How bad does your modelling predict it may get? Well, the models that I've done are very simple, and I think we should regard them as illustrative rather than we definitely don't want to see them as predictions. But the modelling that was done for our report, which is not my modelling but done by colleagues, suggests that depending on the scenarios, you could get up to sort of twice the amount of transmission of a normal year. But you have to accept that, of course, a normal year is very variable too. And if you get more transmission combined with a strain that causes a lot of problems or there's relatively little immunity to, then that could cause a significant flu season this year. The real challenge is that we're trying to deal with three things at once, actually, in the UK. The first is the impacts of COVID. The second is the potential impact of respiratory infections, which we have every year, winter pressures. And the third is the backlog of care, which we're trying to work off in the circumstances where in hospital, you've got to reduce capacity, at least in part, because of trying to keep control of infection to keep the hospitals safe. What about the fact that there's going to be a confusion between those with COVID-19 symptoms and those with ordinary seasonal flu symptoms. Will that make the scenario worse? Well, that's a very important question of how we sort out who has got flu, who has got COVID, and indeed there are a number of other respiratory infections that circulate that can cause symptoms that are similar to COVID. One of the things we signalled in our academy report, the first one we did last year, was that in the autumn, particularly as the schools reopen and people mixing more, you start to see more respiratory symptoms. We're very familiar with that. So we're warning again about that this year, that the number of people with symptoms will go up. But it's very important, first of all, that if people have got symptoms, they go home and stay away from other people. Whether it's COVID or flu or anything else, you don't want to really pass on your respiratory infections to others. And we know we, we have tests for covid We also have tests for flu, but they haven't been used so widely. So one of the recommendations in our report was that we do need to think about being able to offer both flu and COVID testing. Now, the flu causes many deaths each year, but it's a virus that we have learned to accept and live with in society. Has the experience with COVID-19 shown perhaps that the quote-unquote normal level of flu infection and death is unacceptable when it comes to those deaths, and that maybe behavior should change in the long run to reduce flu outbreaks? Well, I think many people are not aware of the amount of disease that results from flu each year. I think what COVID has taught us is in the long run, all of us can benefit from what we've learned about reducing spread of respiratory infections something we can call respiratory hygiene, rather a formal term, but that I mean social distancing, hand washing, particularly staying home when you're ill and not braving it into work and passing on your viruses, and then face coverings uh, and ventilation and reducing the number of people you're in contact with. All the things that we've learned about transmission of respiratory infections are things that I hope we might carry forward into the future. And with the right public messaging, hopefully there's a positive future for taming winter respiratory infections. Dayman, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken. You can read more on the likelihood of an influenza twindemic in the international section of The Economist, published later this week. You'll also find an obituary of the home computing pioneer Sir Clive Sinclair, the inventor of the ZX Spectrum, or ZX Spectrum, who died on September 16th at the age of 81. 
And if you're not already a subscriber, please remember, it is the best way to support our journalism and this podcast. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Living through a pandemic undoubtedly increased people's levels of anxiety. The experience magnified concerns over work, finances, schooling, basic necessities like food, and, of course, staying healthy. As societies relax restrictions amid the threat of new variants, the stress we face continues to invade our mental health. But anxiety manifests itself in a number of different ways— And it might not always be such a bad thing. 90% of the American population before the pandemic raised their hands and said, I feel anxiety during my day. Wendy Suzuki is a neuroscientist at New York University. This is an issue that, that we all need to address. And all that uncertainty that came along with the pandemic, clinical anxiety levels have gone up by about 30% since the start of the pandemic. Clinical anxiety is anxiety, these feelings of fear and worry that are truly debilitating. You cannot go about your daily life. You can't work. It causes problems with your social relationships. This is where you need medical help. It was estimated that about 20% of the population has clinical levels of anxiety. That means 80% approximately have what I call everyday anxiety. And it is that feeling of of a weight around our necks, a weight on our chest, but not debilitating. You can still go about your life, but, but it's draining. Dr. Suzuki wrote about this everyday anxiety in her new book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. The reason why I say anxiety is good, because evolutionarily, our anxiety and that underlying physiological stress response that comes with it evolved to protect us. This is a protective mechanism and it's also essential for our survival. And I know everybody's saying, I do not feel protected by my anxiety. Sorry about that, but I just don't. And I can tell you why. Because too much of anything, even a good thing, is bad. And as a society uh, across the whole world, our anxiety levels have all been turned up. The volume has been turned up. And so we've lost a lot of that protective element of anxiety. And so the first kind of mindset shift is understand that at its core, anxiety is helpful. It is good. Do you think that people are more anxious today than they were in the past? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I think there is simply more uncertainty in our worlds. That uncertainty comes from 
of course, the pandemic, but it also comes from the reminders of that uncertainty from the 24-7 news cycles, from the social media feeds. Even a simple weather report can start to stimulate feelings of anxiety. And I think those 90% of people that said, yeah, I feel anxious even before the pandemic, they were starting to feel that. Global warming was there, you know, right before the pandemic, all these social media feeds. And so unfortunately, part of the negative development of our culture is that we have started to get stimulated with all of these reminders of uncertainty in our worlds. And that has contributed to this increased level of anxiety. Now, before I ask you about how we can harness it in beneficial ways, let's look at the anxiety itself. What physical and mental toll does a persistent level of anxiety take on the human body? So in a situation of anxiety, our heart rate goes up, our respiration goes up, blood gets shunted from our digestion and reproductive systems out to our muscles. And for a short period, if you need to get away from a danger, this is great because it gets your body ready to do that. But the danger is that with all of these anxiety stimulants all around us, we get put into the state all the time with, with you know, nothing to run away from. And the increase in heart rate can lead long-term with high levels of anxiety all the time to heart disease. Shunting blood away from your digestion and reproductive systems can lead to digestive problems like ulcers, can lead to long-term reproductive problems. And in the brain, uh, high levels of stress that include this stress hormone cortisol literally can damage brain cells and eventually kill those brain cells. They tend to kill brain cells in the two brain areas that are most susceptible to aging, And so this is one of the reasons we should all want to turn that down so we can not only preserve our our kind of physiological systems, but preserve these key brain areas that we need to keep safe for our aging process. Now, is it turning it down or is it just harnessing it productively? We need to turn it down. If there is too much activation of this system from too many different things, that's where, you know, there's no differentiation and it, it leads you down a path to kind of chronic high levels of anxiety. So the first thing we want to do is turn that down and learn how to regulate our emotions better. And the number one tool is called the parasympathetic nervous system, and it is equal and opposite to the fight or flight part of the nervous system. It slows respiration down and it shunts blood from our muscles towards our digestion and reproduction. So how do we activate this parasympathetic nervous system? Breathe slowly and deeply. This is what the system is already doing. And this is the best conscious way we have to start activating that. And I recommend a boxed breathing technique where you inhale on a four count, you hold it for four You exhale on a four count and you hold it for four at the bottom. Try it. You can feel it starting just to slow everything down. And this is something that you can do even in the middle of a stressful or anxiety-provoking conversation. That's going to help me sort of get back to normal if I'm anxious. What if I live in an environment where I'm anxious and I want to harness that anxiety to become even better than I would otherwise be? I always use an example from my life, which is the best talks that I've ever given are those talks where I was scared. I was a little scared. I had those butterflies in my stomach 
what was happening there, that was that anxiety response. I didn't want to fail. It was high stakes. I really wanted to do well. And I was able to harness that activation energy at its core. It is that energy that allows you to do things really well, to step up to bat. And this is where I notice it the most. And so you might say, well, I get those butterflies and then I perform terribly. It's terrible. And you are applying and and living what's called the Yerkes-Dotson law, which is there is an optimal level of activation that anxiety helps you get to, that helps you perform optimally. If you go over that, if you let it kind of really take over the anxiety, I mean, then your performance starts going down. So the answer to your question is you have to learn how to play with your level of anxiety and notice where that anxiety level is optimum so that your outcome, your performance is optimum. So anxiety can in some cases improve performance. Hence, if I want to improve how I do what I do, but if I'm in a relatively placid and peaceful and bucolic and stress-free environment like a newsroom or a podcasting studio, should I seek to add anxiety or stress into the processes to do better at what I do? I think yes, you, you can. I'm a big proponent of self-experimentation. And in fact, I've been doing this all through the last month when I've been doing so many podcasts and TV things. And I think about this, you know, I am talking to Ken from The Economist. So many people are going to listen to this. I want this to be good. I want to give clear answers. And not that I'm trying to stress myself out, but I'm trying to make sure that I'm at my best performance. And I know I'm not at my best performance if I'm like, okay, what's the next one? All right, let's just give it a try. No, I want to do really, really well. So yes, I'm saying use that anxiety. That is part of its power. That is how it could help you. But if it's taking over your life, you can't easily manage it. That's why the first step is always trying to turn that overall high level of anxiety down a little bit so you have more control over it. This is absolutely fascinating. Dr. Suzuki, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ken. It was a pleasure to be here. And finally, coral reefs are structures of great beauty and even greater value. A healthy reef is a rich ecosystem providing a habitat that can nurture and shelter thousands of marine species. Less well known is how they protect the land. By dissipating the energy of waves before they reach shore, natural reefs prevent almost $2 billion a year in flood damage in America alone. Amid warming waters and rising seas, natural reefs need protecting and repairing. But as some die out due to climate change, new sets of man-made reefs are being produced, providing a useful addition to marine ecology. Natural reefs are great, but they take centuries to grow. But the new hybrid version can actually be created in a matter of months. David Hambling writes about technology for The Economist. 
A hybrid reef is an artificial structure which recruits the local ecology to help and carry out all the functions of a natural reef. This is an idea that's been around for quite a few years, but it's starting just now to be deployed commercially, and the military are also starting to be interested in it. So how did hybrid reefs come about? This all dates back originally to the 1970s when a somewhat eccentric scientist called Wolf Hilberts, who was an architect slash marine biologist, looked into how corals grow and whether they could actually be used to make building structures. So originally he was toying with the idea of using electrodes which would grow a limestone coral type material underwater and that could either be used for underwater structures uh, like port facilities and harbours or he was thinking you could actually grow a concrete building underwater and then hoist it back up onto land. Hilberts' later work with Thomas Goro, a marine biologist, came up with a new name for his material. They called it biorock, and the idea that they should be using it as the basis of coral reefs, and in particular for repairing damaged reefs. Great branding. Where are the biorock reefs being used today? Well, the Global Coral Reef Alliance have been using it for reef repairs in the Seychelles, in the Maldives, Jamaica, Mexico, um, but the vast majority of their work is in Indonesia. Something like 300 out of 400 of their projects are there. Now, you mentioned that there's now commercial interest. Where's the money coming from? Previously, it's all been charitable public sector efforts. The idea now, though, is that rather than being something that requires public money, that a hybrid reef could actually be something that would be profitable because companies would want to put money into it as a means for coastal erosion. The first entrepreneur who's really exploring this is a guy called William Bateman, who has a company called SeaCell, and they are just setting up their first hybrid coral reef off a beach in Mexico. So they've got a 110-metre section of reef that they are putting in place there, and the idea is this will stop the beach from being swept away. And while the neighbouring resorts are all putting up breakwaters using sandbags or rocks, theirs is going to be all natural and theirs is going to be more of an attraction than an eyesore. At the same time as the commercial interest, though, there's also a military interest. This is coming from DARPA, the Defence Advanced Research Project Agency, which is the Pentagon's extreme science arm. And they're looking at hybrid reefs as a way of coastal defence to protect their thousands of coastal installations. And what about in colder climates where coral reefs don't naturally thrive? There is actually a cold water alternative in the form of oyster reefs. So if you've got oyster beds, over time they build up and the shells of the uh, previous generations of oysters fuse together and you get this thing called a, an oyster bank or an oyster reef, which is very much the same as a coral reef. So again, just the top layer of that is the latest generation of living oysters. And like a coral reef, that is self-sustaining and self-repairing over time. And that is quite happy in colder waters. In fact, there used to be quite a lot of oyster reefs off the northeast American coast until overfishing and environmental degradation really took those out in the 20th century. And how can we make sure that these hybrid reefs have the right species that move in and populate these artificial structures? The idea is that it should be a full ecosystem. If you want a coral reef, it's not just a matter of having coral. There's lots of other organisms that support and sustain the coral there. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the big problems is that there are algae which will outcompete coral. So you need to have certain fish and other marine organisms that eat the algae. There's also other fish which come along and eat coral, but luckily there are 
even more types of fish that will chase those off and make their nests in the coral. So you, you've really got to get everyone working together. One of the more interesting techniques, which several groups of scientists have been working with, uh, is by using sound. They found that if you broadcast the sounds recorded on a healthy coral reef, that will actually attract fish that are looking for somewhere to stay. So you can recruit marine organisms from the area by broadcasting the right sounds. And there's probably lots of other ways of doing that with subtle chemical signals and other ways. And that's what they're looking into at the moment. Okay, but can these hybrid reefs survive the biggest threat to their natural counterparts, climate change? Well, that's one of the biggest problems, and that's one of the crucial questions which DARPA and others are going to need to answer. The problem is that climate change is making seawater both warmer and more acidic, both of which are highly damaging to corals. How they're going to solve that, we don't know yet, but it may very well involve finding out which coral species are most robust uh, and then basically breeding from them and seeding reefs with the most resilient varieties and the most resilient combination of varieties to tackle future conditions. David Hambling, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Seriously, it helps increase the visibility of the show so more people become regular listeners. And with that popularity comes the resources to do even more original coverage of technology and science. So please do rate us. The producers are Jason Hoskin, Abby Soye Oshindairo, and Amiko Shortino-Nolan. Nico Rofast is the sound engineer, and the program's editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Cukier, and enjoying the last rays of sun in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.